The time between January and August is spent on a variety of different topics in Dynasty, but I don't think any is more consistent than arguing over which sophomore player, or which rookie turning into a sophomore player, had a good or bad rookie season last year, or will have a good or bad rookie sophomore season in the year to come. It's for good reason year two players see the highest jump in volume and points in any other career year. Young players who succeed are going to be very valuable and score more points, ideally. The way we look for them ranges from bold statements, like the consensus rookie wide receiver one is in fact good, to more subtle and hope-driven dives into a player's stats, their context, the coaching reports, or their target per blah de blah during a specific stretch of games when etc etc or who is eating breakfast with who this offseason. Historic comparisons, both realistic and bizarre, are thrust forward like first jabs in the 12th round. Fight me, I dare you. The term outlier is defined, redefined, argued over, then quietly taken out back and shot in the head. Everyone pretends not to notice. It's fun, a time when you can just say stuff. When tone conveys meaning, conveys knowledge, presumed success. You can post a screenshot of a graph someone else made and nod towards it knowingly. The smugger the gift, the better. Number go green. Fantasy football by conditional formatting. But stats don't work in a vacuum. The similarities between a player's profile don't matter if the differences outweigh them. If it doesn't matter if you have a high yards per route run or first downs per target against certain types of zone, if you don't operate on similar volume or in a similar ADOT or in a similar depth chart or with similar draft capital. But decisions must be made and darlings chosen. Value over baseline, or V-O-B-A, for a fun acronym. It's my version of what Adam Hardstead talked about when he came on the Dynasty Crossroads a little while ago. He came on on episode 626, if you want a reminder, or if you're interested in my formula and the results you can see in my NFL database on Patreon. It's a dollar. I like the idea, to keep it simple, just look at the number of points scored over replacement level multiplied by games played. I'm still tinkering with a more actionable dynasty formula for myself, but defining good this way, points over replacement multiplied by games played, works for a very simple measure in a season. It makes sense and remains relevant, rooted in the reality of fantasy football. Now, I don't have a script for this part, but for some reason, the reality of fantasy football, I've just kind of got it noted that I should make a joke here, that that's a ridiculous statement. So, yeah, that's what I've come up with. There you go. I define replacement as 132nd highest scoring PPR scorer in flex ranks, so all positions, essentially because in an average super flex league, starting two running backs, two wide receivers, a tight end, and a flex spot, that means 132 players are being started any given week. They won't be the same as Adam's numbers, but it's close, looking at his free sheets and what I came up with, and it's something I can calculate myself without being able to code or scrape a lot of websites or just steal the numbers from Adam. If there is a single line, which there isn't, but I'll default to value of a baseline as my measurement of whether a player had a good or a bad season, or a good or a bad rookie season. There have been 87 wide receivers drafted and undrafted since 2000 who have broken out for at least one top 12 season in any career year. 55, or 63% of them, had a positive year one in value of a baseline. Of those 53 breakouts who broke out in the first three seasons, 41, or 77%, had a positive value of a baseline. 
if we limit to players drafted since 2010, after which receiving production is notably different, especially in terms of career paths and career arcs, 28 of 33 of those breakouts, or 88%, had a positive value of a baseline. But we're still copying Adam here, so we may as well point out one of his razors, the Adam Harstead razor, that anything interesting is probably sample selection, although I'm pretty sure he says it better. Since 2010, 92 players have been drafted or undrafted into the NFL had a positive value of a baseline, not the breakouts, just everyone who's had a positive season in their rookie year. Since there are only 33 breakouts in that time, that means that only 35% of the players with the positive value of a baseline broke out for a top 12 season. I think that's undernoted when looking at thresholds. We can dig further and we can look at the top 24 wide receiver breakouts or breakouts by some other definition or just positive fantasy value or relevance and on and on. But these broad lines are largely true. Good indicators are shared by a target group, whatever breakout you're looking for, about 70% of the time. But of that group, with a positive indicator for whatever threshold you're using, only about 35, 34 to 36% of them really, turn out to be those breakouts. I don't mention this to conclude anything or might drop an idea. I just want to know how often things happen and how consistently they perform. What we should, and by large, expect to happen more often than not. I don't target sleepers or breakouts or values. I look for what should happen, and then I go see which of those things might I might be able to get on my Dynasty team. I write up the process on DLF.com or DynastyLeagueFootball.com, of which this podcast is, you know, a DLF podcast, so there you go. I also put them on Patreon. I post the data of my conclusions on Twitter and on Patreon. I make videos about the conclusions and also, well, sneakily trying to fit some of the process in there on YouTube. I live stream every week on 9.30 p.m. EST, Eastern Standard Time. I don't know why I read the abbreviation. For the Dynasty Grind, to answer direct questions about any of this or its application in your leagues or my leagues or anyone else's leagues. The way I play Dynasty isn't a secret, and it's not fancy. It's not meant to beat anyone in evaluation. I'm a take what I can get, assuming I don't know the future, that winning in a single season is in part always going to be variance or luck, and that I'm not going to be able to outsmart anyone. I want to build slowly, constantly improving my team. It's not the only way, and I don't get to do exactly what I want to do in every league, but that's the default. I try to rank, write, and podcast from that perspective. One of the most difficult parts trying to play this way sometimes is that you have to be disciplined. I want to believe David Bell can be a good year two player. I can make an argument that he could, for the right value at least. I might even try to roster him more because I'm crazy like that. But that's not how I play Dynasty and certainly not how I make content. If explaining the best way I found or things I think that I know we can believe will slowly improve our teams upwards or onwards. Uh, there's no space for that kind of hyperbole for me. From this perspective, there are absolutes, even in very specific situations, in, very, in specific leagues or sp- for specific trades. I need a little good faith here. Try not to use what I think to justify what you want to say or vice versa. You can't just do that, you know. For a start, it's fantasy football. It's meant to be fun. You're allowed to just ride your favorite sleepers 
train till the wheels come off. I still roster Giovanni Bernard, not to mention Andrew Luck and a few others who will remain nameless for the time being. I mention all this to say two basic things. One, you should never invest value, quote-unquote, in disappointing rookie seasons. And two, context always matters. We're not going to find the best players or take only Ws. It's just going to work out reliably more often over the long haul. But while it's also... (laughs) But while it's always easy to convince yourself a player is different, it's also easy to make yourself believe your idea or process worked, sometimes incorrectly. That's how I try and improve, by finding when I do that. Sophomores with a letdown rookie season are, however, still reliably one of the few things we know, I know, you know, pretty much everyone knows, are below average bets. They don't improve or score more fantasy points or find the right fit, coaching staff or quarterback connection. Or have the right breakfast with them. But how often do the results feel better because of luck or chance? Or college profiles that just keep us adjusting? Let's dig in. The lowest scoring rookie season from a wide receiver class in the modern era of the NFL, since 2010, was actually 2018. As measured by value of a baseline. The average for a breakout wide receiver in value of a baseline is 66 points, by the way for a total season. In 2008, of the two first-round picks from the NFL draft, only one scored 66 points. That was Calvin Ridley. The other was DJ Moore. He scored 23 points. Both were good. Both continued an impressive career arc despite Ridley's suspension and Moore's touchdown limitation or lack of top 12 upside. Still, at least, I think maybe it was highlighting the right ones. Mostly, The others to score positively were Cortland Sutton, who broke out into the top 24 in year two, but also Dante Pettis and Kiki Kute. I rule both out for context reasons, college profiles, over-efficiency, and role limitations. So it's probably all good, maybe? The third-round pick who accrued value, Michael Gallup, had negative value of a baseline, minus 37, which is pretty bad. But I believe my knowledge of his college profile predicted his year two finish. But maybe I didn't, and maybe it was just Dak, or maybe both, or maybe the fact the depth chart cleaned up for year two, or his draft capital. Of the second round picks from that season, Christian Kirk, DJ Chark, Colton Sutton, again, James Washington, and Dante Pettis. Only Christian Kirk and Colton Sutton scored positively, which sounds good now, but I held the flame of Christian Kirk's rookie profile for three years, And after three positive value over baseline seasons, something I wasn't measuring at the time, but I liked his college profile, and no top 24 finishes, I have to say I'd given up the ghost long before 2022's top 12 wide receiver breakout. Did this even work, or was it luck? Would I still prefer Kirk to Pettis, or Kiki to anyone else in 2020, if those seasons happened in 2022? Whether we use stats, film, or narratives, or all three, we convince ourselves we know more than we think we do. In other words, you can't catch all the snowflakes, but if you concentrate on the type of snowflake that is caught more often, and then look in a certain direction, then 60% of what you catch will in fact be a snowflake. I just count how many times things happen. So let's look at negative hits. There have been seven in year two, so year two negative breakouts into the top 24. So they had a negative value of a baseline rookie season, but broke into the top 24 in year two. Seven of them since 2010. 
Michael Pittman, DJ Chark, Michael Gallup, Randall Cobb, Robbie Anderson, Tyrell Williams, and uh, Antonio Brown. Half ran less than 300 routes, half ran more than 260. Only DJ Chark was drafted in the first round. Only Michael Pittman of that group was drafted in the second round. So half of the group was drafted outside the fourth round. Filtered by targets per route run or market share or college profile yards per receiving teams, receiving yards per team's pass attempt, I promise you, you never quite hit more than half the group without giving into sample bias at least. But check out the data for yourself if you don't believe me on those seven players. But remember, stats don't work in a vacuum. If you can get more than half the group using the same filter, it's probably just magical thinking to believe we can predict them. Or how about our top 12 breakout group? Only two had a negative value of a baseline season in their rookie year and then broke out in year two. Those top 12 breakouts in year two, only one happened since 2010. So let's look at both since 2000 proper. Alshon Jeffrey, who played 10 games behind Brandon Marshall, uh, um, Forte, and Earl Bennett. In, he played behind all three of them in targets. And Brandon Marshall, uh, uh, who played behind Javion Walker and Rod Smith, both of who had over 90 targets that season. And he was third on the team. Both, as I remember, had stronger medical issues early in their career as well. There are actually only three who broke out year two with less than 40 points over baseline since 2010. Six if we go all the way back to 2000 again. Again, if we want to go a little bit further and look at the group proper, there have actually been five uh, breakouts with negative value over baseline into the top 12 if we include players that broke out in year three. That includes the Adams and, and Godwins, for example. So let's make this simpler. Let's make the negative year one rookies who did well after that point as thick and large as we can actually get it. Those who broke out in any career year, including Robert Woods, since 2010 with less than 40 points over baseline, so not even a negative season, just below 40 points. That makes 22 players since 2010. Their average draft round is the third round. Their average breakout year is the year four. Average routes run in their rookie season is 304. Their target share in the rookie season average is 13%. Their average targets per route run in their rookie season is 20.8 or just 20%. Their points per game in their rookie season is around 7 points. Using the same definition uh, of players who played in their rookie season and scored over 40 points in their rookie season, over 40 points over baseline in their rookie season, their average draft round was the second round. Their average breakout year was year two. Their average routes run was 468. Their average target share was around 19.5%, so about the same. Their average target per route run is around 22%, so slightly higher. And their average points per game is nearly double at 14. Broadly speaking, disappointing rookie seasons who hit further down the line, average lower stats, have less opportunity in their rookie year, and are lower drafted. They miss more time. They also break out, though not necessarily impress or improve in value, further into their career. Since stats don't work in a vacuum, there's relatively few ways we can search for disappointing hits outside of they get worse stats. Which is, every because that's everyone. While it's underrated how few positive indicator players actually hit, again around 35% using value of a baseline, 
of the 22 disappointing rookie hits, you're chasing a group with over 502 players that didn't cross that fantasy baseline of over zero fantasy points over baseline. So it's 22 out of 502. 35% sounds bad until you consider the 4% of everyone else and 4% of them go on to be those breakouts. But let's be a little bit more reasonable. 127 of those disappointing rookie seasons, less than 40 points over baseline, were drafted in the first three rounds of the NFL draft. That's a fair filter. So that brings our hit group up to 17% of players that play in a rookie season and then have bad rookie seasons. You could also, and I know you want to, limit that group using the thresholds, right? But let me show you why stats don't work in a volume and those Twitter arguments are literal junk. If we filter by seven points per game, that's one of the baselines, right? That of the group that we looked at. But if we do it, we can we can increase our percentage of players in the group from their rookie seasons to a 53% of them are actually hits, which is much closer to the positive rate that we talked about earlier. But it's not. It isn't. Because we're trying to impose the opposite logic of our findings here. Disappointing rookies, hits, have lower stats. They average less. But establishing a floor threshold, we remove a portion of the group who actually hit. The seven points per game threshold actually removes eight players from our target group. The players who had disappointing rookie seasons and then went on later to hit. So, what that means is we've actually filtered into a worse hit group. It's a 26% of players that you could filter to from a rookie season since 2010 actually go on to be hits, which is significantly worse, again, than the positive group. Even though a lot of those players with the positive indicators don't go on to be the hits, it's still a much more target-rich environment, if you will. You've made your potential pool smaller at the cost of making sure you hit less often. Looking for negative signal is, in a word, it's just literally a lie. Now, I'm not a statistician, as you know, and I engage with data evaluation mainly to have something to try to understand the context or the arguments that I hear a lot um, of a player's season or their college production. There may be a better way to do this that helps, but every article or post that I've read using this type of logic for negative seasons or bad rookie bounce backs in their second or third seasons uses this exact same method. It isn't it doesn't work and it doesn't make sense if you're not looking for an answer and instead you're just following through with your research. Looking for negative hits leaves you either accepting that there are two reasons for a bad rookie season or abandoning it. They missed time or they had lower draft capital. Beyond that, to say to stay consistent, you have to filter to the worst possible season to find a better hit rate group, not just not just worst at a certain point, but better above that point. In other words, Sky Moore, Jalen Talbot, Jamison Williams, and David Bell are technically in the hit rate group of negative rookie season bounce backs in their second season to maybe break out in their third year. The idea would be that they do better next year and then break out in their third year if you're following it through. I don't hate that argument at all, but I, I'm not sure I want to build around it. Especially because you also have to include Danny Gray, Velas Jones, and Tyquan Thornton, who to be fair, Zach Reed from the Dynasty Dummies actually did like. If they're rostered, if they're on your roster, or they're for free, 
or an add-on to a trade that somehow doesn't change the trade substantially. I like the idea the same way I like undrafted free agents. The lower likelihood is value adjusted. So you can hunt for that rare hit by investing less. The risk is managed by the investment cost, as it were, to use... That sounds wrong, but there you go. But if it has significant value, it's better spent elsewhere. I find most players who just spend a second on a rookie don't trade them for a third or drop them completely next year, but maybe in those cases, because a question of a roster space is more important than anything else in that situation, sure. But we also have to choose our darlings in the positive group, and I think that's where our effort should be spent. Let's look at the most disappointing rookie class of all time. Should we be encouraged by a sophomore player because of the quality of their class? In a word, no. But it is important we adjust to the results of that class in year one. Since 2014, I have DLF ADP to work with, which makes this question a little easier to work with. I've been calculating points over expected and under expected based on ADP ever since I heard JJ Zacharyson talk about it and then I stole the idea. In that time, we failed to improve on our projections or predictions for only one rookie class in their sophomore season. In that we got closer to expected points in their sophomore season in ADP in all classes except one. That was 2015. It was also the lowest scoring class in points over that time, points expected over that time, so we had the lowest expectations and still got worse on it in the second year. I think this tells us two basic things. 2015 went very badly for us, and two, we didn't shift our expectations nearly enough from their sophomore season. The reason for this is probably partly because of the best scoring class of all time that was the year before, 2014. We believe the position was different now. It's also because we forgot the lessons of what we've just talked about. The 2015 class brought with it more points from lower drafted players, and instead we kept the first round picks high despite disappointing rookie seasons. Amari Cooper, Devontae Parker, and Nelson Aguilar are essentially the reason. All contributed heavily to the negative points over expected in that sophomore season. We didn't move Diggs up enough, we didn't move Aguilar down enough. Only Cooper, from the first round, had a positive rookie season in value over baseline or points per game or any of the thresholds you prefer to compare them to. But Parker was still drafted 27th overall the following season, and Aguilar only fell to 103rd overall. That was from the 42nd overall pick, to be fair. But that's only a round higher than Diggs, who had a positive rookie season, who was drafted 73rd overall. Lockett was 35th, and he had a positive season. We also elevated, for some reason, Devin Funches from 87th overall to 53rd overall, even though he had a measurably bad rookie season across any threshold I just mentioned, compared to the historical group he should be in. The class in total scored has scored 3,100 in total value over baseline to this point in its career. That's actually a bad average, but half of it came from players outside, drafted outside the top 96 picks in the NFL draft, which is above average. We are prone to believe in new trends and old constants, great classes and draft capital, and we fail to adjust to a class's actual results. It's worth keeping in mind. That's all I'm saying. Nelson Aguilar wasn't worth it. Never was. First round or not, Stefan Diggs was.
So let's look at the best rookie class. Using architects is a very good process, as long as those architects exist. There are a lot of ways to define bad, and 2005 is probably the clearest, the clearest worst draft class ever in fantasy terms, looking back to 2000. Not only did no wide receiver break out into the top 24 till year three, but four of the players to make it into the top 24 at least once waited until year four, and one of them waited until year seven. It was a bad class, for fantasy at least. I'm not sure, but I think a lot of people may have traded for Nate Washington from that class as a late breakout, hoping he was Robert Woods, only to find out later that he was, in fact, Robert Woods. Of course, Robert Woods happened after Washington, so maybe reverse that sentence so it makes sense or something. Having said that, as a class throughout their career, 2005 totaled 3,078 value of a baseline. That's less than the two classes before him, who both... Uh, totaled 4,500 values over baseline for the length of their career, but it's more than 2002, the year before them. It's a bad average. They had late breakouts and low ceilings, but Roddy White held the value over baseline together. Even bad classes have good players, is my point there. So let's consider the best rookie classes. The best classes average over 5,800 value over baseline for the length of their careers. The average for a rookie class, again, is around 3,000. Outside of those three classes, no classes score more than 4,800, and the vast majority score between 2,000 and 3,000 throughout their careers when they're finished. 2014, you won't be surprised to hear, is the best rookie class. But while we think about it as definitive, the other two classes that are comparable, comparable look nothing like it. When you sum up the total value of a baseline for each rookie class, the three classes that stand out, 2014, 2010, and 2001, look very different, but they look very different from each other as well. It isn't the... For example, 2014, which actually isn't the highest scoring class yet, but it's not finished yet, and since it's been outpacing every other class in points per game and value of a baseline every year of its career, it, it's only a matter of time. But currently, it's called 6,563 total value of a baseline, which is immense. And it began with the second, with the highest scoring rookie season of all time, 554 points in total from the entire rookie class. The closest, the next closest, is 2020, who scored 460 points value of a baseline in the rookie season. That's nearly half as much, but it is the next best. 2014 was also easy. The players who broke out by broke out by year two, the players who broke out were also the highest drafted more often than not, although technically Adam Thielen is a 2014 wide receiver and he's he's listed that way half the time and listed as 2015 the other half of the time because of when he caught, recorded his first stats. Anyway, of his 6,563 points, only 546 of them have come from players drafted outside the top 96 picks, which is average to below average for a rookie class. Although since 2018, there's literally been zero value over baseline scored by undrafted players, so come on, Justin Ross, we need you. That's a side note. 2014 didn't just deliver, it doubled the next closest class in its rookie season. It did it on time, it did it in spectacular fashion, and it redefined the position in Dynasty, not to mention the one-hand catches. But since then, no other class is over 2,000 points by year two, 
which 2014 was. And while 2020, the second highest scoring class, and 2021, which is about average, um, are all over a thousand points at this point, two years at, or two years into their career, there's that's no different than 2009. There's a separation before and after 2010 for the results, but no rookie class since outside of 2014 or since 2014 is likely to go over 4,000 points by the end of their careers, never mind 5,800. 2014 redefined the position in Dynasty, but it did not redefine the limits of the position in the NFL. It's just Dynasty. So let's look closer at those other two great classes. 2001 is currently the highest scoring rookie class ever, because they've rounded out their career, probably. 2014 will overtake it. But compared to 2014, it had double the number of points scored over baseline from players drafted outside pick 96 in the NFL draft, around 1,100 of its 6,800. However, its more obvious difference is its lack of pizzazz, flash, or ceiling. It's a rookie class who, if rookie classes were NFL players, you wouldn't recognize it if it was wearing street clothes. Seven players drafted in 2020, 2001 had a top 12 season, but none of them would do it until year three. Three had five or more top 12 seasons, but only one, Steve Smith, finished inside the top two at the position. Reggie Wayne did have five top five finishes, but three of the top seven 12 players... That's a confusing sentence. Three of the players that had top 12 seasons from that class would never repeat top 12 seasons back to back. However, it is worth noting that five of the best players from that class would also finish at least inside the top 36 in each of the last two seasons. Compared to 2014, which had five top 12 players right now, only two of them finished inside the top 12 over the last two years, even though the class isn't finished. That's Adams and Evans. And Alan Robinson's looks to have faded into oblivion with much less elegance than the 2001 class. In short, one of the differences between those two classes is that 2001 was, by and large, slightly lower drafted, but also much more consistent over the course of its career, scored higher, more consistently, and deeper into its career. It's also the lowest scoring rookie year from any rookie class. It had the worst scoring rookie season of any rookie class, with only 93 points over baseline in its first year. One other class has less than 100, and that's 2005, which is pretty easily definable as the worst fantasy season or class, for, especially at the wide receiver position, ever. So the conclusion I'm desperately rolling towards here is in short a mediocre scoring rookie season is not a reason to speculate that an abnormal number of players are going to break out or not break out because of the three phenomenal classes we have we see that they are not directly comparable to each other in their results from their rookie season one of the worst rookie seasons from a draft class ever if not the worst is one of the best scoring fantasy classes of all time Let's look at the other class. The third best scoring rookie class currently right now in throughout the entirety of their career was 2010. Their rookie season's best performance was from a fourth round player drafted 101st overall in the NFL draft. He finished as the 16th scoring highest scoring PPR wide receiver with 964 receiving yards and 129 targets. There's a lot of targets there for those yards. 14 points per game and a 26% target share. And if you're interested, a 1.7 yards per route run. Also 94 points over baseline. 
This would be his peak, however, acquiring only two top 24 seasons, one in his first year. He never finished higher than 16th. The second best rookie season from the 2010 class was from a player who finished 19th in their rookie season. That was Des Bryant, enough said. The other first-round player, however, from that draft class, finished outside the top 60 in this rookie season and had less than 100 routes in his first season and only a 10% target share per game. He was arguably better than both Des Bryant and the Williams fella because that was Demarius Thomas. No one else finished inside the top 36 in that first year from the 2010 wide receiver class. The 2010 class relied on lower draft capital players being great because they are, but more so than 2001 and 2014, notably. Antonio Brown, Demarius Thomas, first round pick, Eric Decker was not. Golden Tate, Emmanuel Sanders and Des Bryant make up the, the bulk of the great players from that class. Much like 2001, it was a low scoring year one, the lowest scoring rookie class since 2010 actually, and the third lowest since 2001. But by the end, it's still one of the top three scoring class and in a very different class of its own, all three of them are, compared to every other rookie class. Rookie seasons don't really tell us a lot about the class expectation. So what are some actionable takeaways here? 2022, despite having a lot going for it, including some 2014 comparisons, with most of the best performances being produced by most of the best drafted players, but there's also little reason to suspect it's anything like 2014, or any other class. If we're making class comparisons, it actually looks a lot more like 2009 or 2011 or 2016, but I don't want to get into that too deep because making class comparisons this way, as we've just seen, isn't a great way to predict a class's future based on year one. But it looks like a fairly good class. That's it. These similarities between 9 and 11 and 16 and 22 don't mean too much. What we know of the 2014 comparison that I just ran through is that classes don't start very similarly and end up the same way, even in the most extreme examples. What we can say is that breakouts in year one elevate in year two, or they mostly don't till late in their career. Breakout or later in their career. Breakouts year one are more likely to keep being relevant, but we do have to choose our darlings very strictly. Negative year one performances result in good fantasy seasons moving forward pretty often, or every now and again. But they are typically lower drafted, they miss significant time in year one. And arguing about their stats is basically pointless, because the whole point is they had bad points, they had bad stats. So are Sky Moore and David Bell breakout candidates? Landing spot, coaching narratives, and finding some positive stats for a, for a low year one producer is unlikely to move me. Because while it happens, 28% of breakouts have a bad year one, like we saw. Ultimately, they don't have any single thing in common. So their differences are more important to me. He's cheap, so it doesn't matter? For upside and opportunity cost, yes. But if they are unlikely to hit then most value, quote-unquote, is better spent elsewhere. Leo Segura, whose name I just butchered again, on Twitter recently uh, commented that the single answer in Dynasty seems to be, I'd trade them away for a first, but I would buy them for a second, and he's better in best ball. 
In other words, a word salad that leaves you with nothing but the feeling of having been, had your pockets picked for time, attention, engagement by an expert. But equally common is the implication that value is infinite. A second round pick is nothing, sure, but if you spend it on a disappointing sophomore, then don't complain later when you can't use it to tear up your lower floor player into a first, or get that running back you need to finally win your home league in week 14. We always want more, but you generally can only do so many things with the value on your roster. It's cheap, sure, but if you spend a dollar, then you can't add it to other dollars later when you find a better deal. Cheap is the last bastion of a poor position, to me, and I can't make a decision so I'll hide behind it doesn't sway me. Sure, take free things, but you get no applause from me for getting something for nothing when you literally said the only reason you wanted it is because it's for nothing, not because you think you have a reason to suspect it will be something. That, that was a hard sentence to write. I want a line of applause or something for that one. If you want to constantly roster disappointing rookies, make it all of them. Or try for all of them. That's a decision in part that I could add to a dynasty process, but it basically boils down to the rookies you liked who disappointed and roster space. And we're all kind of just stuck with the rookies we drafted who disappointed. So the question of roster space, not value or trades, I think in a decent dynasty process. Or we're just bleeding value. Of course, some good bets are also cheap. Players are sometimes undervalued in micro-markets. Marcus Brown, Devontae Smith, uh, we've come across a few. Tyler Boyd in year two. Or when the majority don't realize a consistent signal. But there's less and less of those edges, even if they used to be more and more, and I'm honestly not sure there ever were. Dynasty is a constant build to me. Continually betting that you find one of those edges against a group is just a slow bleed into the void. Sky Moore and David Bell both had terrible rookie seasons with negative minus minus 68 value of a baseline. It'd be better if they didn't play. Sure, they had good college... Uh, Sure, they could break out, but negative breakouts have later breakout seasons, even though they could do something to impress and improve their ADP in year two. I hope so, but I'm not basing my season or dynasty team around it. Players who don't pass any test or anyone's definition of good in their rookie season but go on to do well, at best, that's 28% of all breakouts in all years ever, including the really late breakouts. They have very little in common, but if you're looking... Go looking for players who missed time, had lower draft capital, who have drastic position, drastic situation changes as well. But you generally get what you pay for. My son is thinking about starting a podcast. I know this because my wife walked into the living room and demanded to know what my podcast is about. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to say it and I sighed because she doesn't play fantasy and it's kind of hard to explain to someone who doesn't. She sighed harder because that's a talent she has. Um, just what is your po- why is your podcast different than everyone else's, is the way she eventually asked it. And that answer came more easily. I emphasize a historical perspective over a player evaluation one. She was trying to explain to my son that if you must be able to explain your podcast in a few words so that anyone who might be interested in it can know that they might be interested in it. An elevator pitch, as it were. And that's mine, apparently. I focus on history rather than trying to beat everyone on player evaluation. That's not where I started. I thought I'd just figure out a few stats that predicted things, collect data, run the math, and sort the column, you know? 
It couldn't be that hard. I'd learned a lot and listened to a lot of great analysts talk about a lot of great ideas. Market share for college players was a good place to start. Look at all those Dominator ratings. I started, if you go back far enough, posting about the potential of Michael Campanaro. I still roster. And a little later, Malcolm Mitchell. It was the right idea. Take those cheap shots on things folks undervalue, but don't build around hitting on upside picks for no value. Put your money where your mouth is. Instead, pair small amounts of value to tear up slowly over time to add to your team while taking those occasional shots. I've chased down a lot of understanding since then and a lot of dead ends, but none of it has solved anything. It's been more a game of learning the limits of what we can know and what we can establish in terms of a range of expectations. We should only invest value in potential rarely in Dynasty, which is why the rookie draft is so freeing, because it's literally all you can do if you don't trade out. And when we do invest for potential, we should be all in. Don't mealy-mouth me. Don't tell me it's worth nothing, therefore you have a lot of tea because you're investing nothing in the upside. That that doesn't seem like a good way to play Dynasty to me. Or at least that's how I want to play. I think it's the best option, but it's not the only one. Looking back, I'm not sure I'd make all the best fantasy moves I ever made that worked out the best, but I do know I wouldn't make any of the previous mistakes. Probably. Or do. There are many ways to play fantasy, and there is no there is such the thing as talent. You can just be good at this, which... Is not something I rely on. Some analysts and dynasty players do have talent for the game, though. And it, but if you're interested in my ranks, my articles, my data, all of it can be found on Patreon, on DLF. You can hit me up on YouTube anytime for those videos, or meet me on the Dynasty Grind every Wednesday at 9:30. If you haven't before, I'd be happy to chat with you about any of it. Contact me anytime. Chat, argue, or disagree at PA Howdy on Twitter. If you don't want to do the face face to face thing. That's fine too. Anyway, thanks very much for checking out the podcast. Sorry this is a long one. And I feel like I couldn't get quite down to all of the... I couldn't sink enough of it down to single word conclusions. But but I tried, alright? Let me know what you think. Thanks very much. And I'll see you next week. Yeah. Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go. Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so... Jake on the table and Nate on the play, so Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical Picking my nose, don't really know if I like that Picking their brains, got different lanes, but I like that Picking these guys, all of these times, all of these nice stats Picking apart, the film is an art, always a fight Back and forth, there is no order, they disorder more and more Because the players ain't no older, they some hoarders or some mortars Dropping bombs without no borders, they got that I, I like mortar Peak grinding numbers like molars, I don't know anymore, I am at a crossroads Chicken a crow, chicken a crow, crossing the road, go Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so Jake on the table and Nate on the plays, no Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical Chicken or crow, chicken or crow, crossing the road, go Clicking a poll, Twitter is gold, player unfold, so Jake on the table and Nate on the plays, no Pete enumerates the plays, they're analytical